Welcome to episode 130 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux good news. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got a lot of big updates to talk about, like the latest release of the Linux kernel with version 5.10. A major version update for the GTK Toolkit has been released, and that's with GTK 4. We've also got a follow-up for the CentOS topic from last week we're going to cover. And OBS Studio has released version 26.1 that has a lot of cool Linux-related features, and I am so excited to try this new version, so we'll talk about that later on. We've also got some distro news from Linux Mint, Debian, OpenSUSE, and a mobile Linux news update from the UbiPorch team. All that and much more coming up right now on This Week in Linux. Let's start the show off with the namesake of the show, the Linux kernel. This is This Week in Linux podcast, so you know whenever there's a new version of the Linux kernel, I'm going to talk about it. So Linus Torvalds, oh, for those who are not aware, Linus Torvalds started the Linux project. Uh, I know most people are aware of that, but hey, you never know. It's possible. Anyway, it's Linus Torvalds says that this release is mostly drivers, as it should be, with a smattering of fixes all over, networking, architectures, file systems, toolings, and etc. So let's talk about the highlights. I mean, we're going to be covering just the highlights in this this release because there's always a lot to talk about. So we're just going to cover the highlights for this release because, well, there's otherwise this would take an hour to do just this one topic. Anyway, so the highlights are, let's start with the CPUs. They added EFI boot support for the RISC-V architecture. They've added the version 8 for ARM's architecture, or ARM V8 is now supported. They have now added support for Intel's Rocket Lake CPUs, uh, added support for the USB 4 and Thunderbolt 3 on the Intel Tiger Lake CPUs, and also early support for Alder Lake and Meteor Lake. Now, I'm just a quick note. I'm curious like, for anybody who knows what the lake stuff means. Uh, I know it came went from like Haswell to Broadwell and to everything. Where did the lake stuff come from? I'm not really sure. If you do know, let me know in the comments below. And uh, yeah. So anyway, in addition to Intel updates, there's also some improvements for AMD. So the, the AMD's SEV or Secure Encrypted Virtualization has it expanded to also have encryption for uh, guest processor registers. Uh, the There's also been some display support for VC4 DRM drivers for the Raspberry Pi 4. And also there's been some improvements to static calls for post-Spectre performance. What does that mean? What's post-Spectre performance? Or, so post-Spectre is related to the vulnerability issues that were found with the a couple years ago with Spectre and Meltdown. So Spectre is the one that affected pretty much every architecture, and Meltdown was mostly isolated to Intel. Not completely, but mostly. And uh, post-Spectre refers to the era of after having to do all the mitigations to solve the issue because performance after Spectre it's a lot lower than it previously was before people knew about Spectre. So there you go. And if you'd like to learn more about the static call stuff, uh, William Woodruff wrote a deep dive for this on his blog, which I will have linked in the show notes below. Also, the latest release of 5.10 for the Linux kernel has improvements for the Panfrost driver for Mali GPUs. It now sufficiently supports the Bifrost generation thanks to the Collabora team. Is it Collabora or Calibora? It's probably Collabora because of like collaboration. I don't. If you work for Collabora, 
let me know from like, you know, if, if you happen to be watching this episode or on Twitter or just leave a comment or whatever, let me know because I am curious. I've never actually seen a description of how you pronounce that. And if you know, it'd be cool to get an official word on that. Anyway, they also fixed the uh, a fix for the Cedrus open source driver for the video engine hardware encoder and decoder for the all winner Sunzi or Sun XI, I don't know, system on a chip or sock family. And this is used in a lot of different system on a chipped boards, as well as used in the Pine uh, Pine sixty four's Pine Phone. So that's really cool. Uh, they've also got some updates in the uh, five point ten release for file systems. So there's extended four has updates that gains file overwrite performance improvements in DIO and DAX modes. Also has reduced the latency of multiple file operations in the extended four file systems. Also ButterFS has some updates, so it, it sees performance boosts for the file system with the F Sync operations. Or the yeah the F Sync operations, and also we got some updates for gaming. So we have the Nintendo Switch controller support has been upstreamed to the Linux kernel, which is cool. And also they've added support for the Mayflash Sega Saturn adapter. Or no, I, I pronounced that wrong. Sega. That that's the proper way to pronounce that for those who didn't know. And uh, also, I'm a big fan of Sega. Just and I've been a big fan for a long time. It's like a nostalgia thing when they saw the Sega Saturn thing. I was like, yes. But uh, just to be clear, so you know the reason is because of the Dreamcast. The Dreamcast is fantastic, and it's the best console ever made, and my favorite. So that's not related to the Linux kernel. I'll just move on. So yeah, yeah. if you want to learn more about the Linux kernel, <laughs> the latest 5.10, I'll have links in the show notes below. Last week, we talked about the CentOS and the big announcement regarding CentOS distribution. And there's been a lot of people talking about this topic, and rightly so, since it's quite a big topic. I mentioned last week that if there are any follow-ups to give, that I would do so. So there was actually a very cool update to share that I wanted to share with you, and that is that Mike McGrath, the Vice President of Engineering at Red Hat, was interviewed on the Destination Linux podcast to help shed some light on this topic. This interview covered all the big questions like you'd want it, you'd want it to, like the, what does this mean for CentOS users? Was IBM involved in the decision? What does this mean for Fedora moving forward? And many other questions. If you'd like to check out the interview, then I'll have a link in the show notes below and in the cards. And if you aren't familiar with the Destination Linux podcast, then you should absolutely check it out because it is awesome. And I do admit that I'm somewhat biased because as you can tell in the video version, I am one of the hosts of the show. But it's also true. It is awesome. So you should check it out. Up next in the show is the latest release of the GTK Toolkit. This is a graphical user interface development toolkit for making applications and that sort of thing. And GTK is also stands for GIMP Toolkit. It's made by the GNOME team, but it's it stands for GIMP Toolkit because they were the original creators of the toolkit. Uh, this actually version of GTK 4.0 has been in the making for about four years, which is fitting with 4.0. Anyway, uh, they also decided to drop the GTK uh, Plus ma- moniker for just GTK. They did they got rid of the plus, which is cool because a lot of people didn't use it anyway, so they just called it GTK regardless. Uh, but anyway, moving on. Uh, Matthias Klassen from GNOME has, t- and in the blog post related to the release of GTK4, they say that GTK4 is the result of a lot of hard work by a small team of dedicated developers. We will have a separate post to go over these statistics, but the short summary is that since the 3.89.1 release in November 2016, we've added over 18,000 commits and made more than 20 development releases. Now, that is pretty cool, and we're, we're not going to talk about everything relates to GTK4 because, again, just like the Linux kernel, this is a big topic and it's pretty technical, so we're not going to go into everything. We're going to talk about highlights on this particular release, so let's do that. So this is now marked as API stable, which means that software developers don't need to worry about breaking changes 
when they go to GTK 4.2, 4.4, 4.6, etc., they they are actually from the GTK t- uh, dev team. They say that this API series will be considered stable. New minor releases may introduce new widgets or update the implementation of window insisting protocols in the GDK backends and that sort of stuff. But no additional re- re- features or theme changes will be allowed, so that the compatibility of the API will be stabilized. They they say that new w- uh, widgets and, re- and reworks to the existing elements have been made for this. Re- release. Uh, they've also improved some uh, media playback support, so they've integrated that in. Uh, GPU acceleration improvements like work on its new Vulkan w- renderer has been done. They've also made some improvements to data transfers. They've overhauled the, overhauled the uh, shader system. They've also done uh, improvements by adding uh, GPU accelerated scrolling, event controller improvements, uh, scalable lists and grids have been uh, improved, and also they've improved the accessibility, which is fantastic because accessibility is not often paid attention to by a lot of projects, and it's really nice to see when that is. For those who don't know, accessibility is for making it easier for people who have uh, issues with like uh, being blind or uh, being deaf and make it, make it have some kind of interaction with that sort of stuff. So really cool. Also, uh, we're going to talk about the future of what this means because for a lot of people are questioning, you know, what does this mean related to GTK3, right? Because XFCE 4.14 is powered by GTK3, GIMP 2.88.2, which was released about a month ago, this was the first version that used GTK3. So what does this mean for all the projects and stuff that's reliant on GTK3? Well, 4.0 is a stable release for the for the GTK toolkit, but it also will continue working on the, G, the GTK3 version. Uh, the GTK2 has been end of life which means they're not going to be working on it anymore. Uh, Actually, the maintenance of GTK2 ended roughly in about 2018, and they ended feature development way back in 2011. So the question about GTK3 is very important for those who remember that decision. Ending development of something while still developing the next version, not the best thing to do. So as someone who does remember the 2 to 3 transition, I am happy to see that they aren't repeating that for GTK4 and GTK3. So they actually are continuing the development of GTK3. So for projects that use the GTK3, they will still be able to use that and get new new updates and that sort of stuff. So that is cool. And also the the future about the the toolkit, they talked about the plans for GTK5 as well, and they say that they plan to have that released around 2 to 3 years. So that's pretty interesting. They're cranking up the development process for the GTK Toolkit, which is really interesting. If you'd like to learn more about the GTK Toolkit with the latest release of GTK 4, then check the links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. Use a simple, intuitive, and visually rich experience to rapidly build, deploy, manage, and scale apps. It has support for Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. It offers high scalability and zero infrastructure management. And what does that mean? Well, you simply point to your GitHub repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting for you. It handles the infrastructure like the app runtimes and the dependencies so that you can push code to production in just a few clicks. Secure apps automatically as well. They create, manage, and renew your SSL certificates as well as also help protect with your apps from DDoS attacks and that sort of thing. You can run code with little to no customization because App Platform uses open cloud-native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters all for you automatically. As a listener, 
listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because you can go to DigitalOcean's uh, do.co slash DLN and check out the app platform for the $100 free credit. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about one of my favorite applications, and that is OBS Studio. So this latest release is 26.1. This seems like a, not a very big release because it's a point release, but it actually has a lot of cool stuff related to Linux. So that's why I want to talk about it. Uh, also, just a quick note, it's really cool that YouTube has become a premier sponsor of OBS Studio, which means even more support and effort can be put into OBS Studio because of all the... It's, it's just really cool to see when big companies like YouTube and also Facebook is one and many others, like Twitch is also one, where they contribute to the project to make it even better, which is just fantastic. Anyway, so 26.1 has a lot of cool features and additions. And first of all, the, I think the one that's the most interesting has to be the virtual camera output on Linux. Now, this requires the, uh, v, uh, the, v, uh, the V4L2 loopback-DKM's kernel module. So you'll need to have that installed, but it's really cool because now you don't have to do any extra loop stuff into the system. You can just use this, have this package installed and you'll be able to use an output of a virtual camera so you can make your OBS stuff be able to stream to Zoom or whatever conference tool you use like Jitsi and whatnot. Very, very cool. So happy to see that being added. They've also added the ability to use a separate audio track when you're doing video on demand when using Twitch. They've also added support for OpenBSD, which is pretty cool. And they've added the ability to ingest captions coming from DeckLink devices via DeckLink ca captions from the tools menu, as well as adding hardware decoding options for stinger transitions, and also a bunch of stuff related to filters, which... Uh, it, I'm so happy about this because it's, it doesn't seem like it's very important, but it is. So they've added the option to duplicate filters in the right-click context menu. They've also added the ability to copy and paste a single filter between sources. I can't tell you how many times that has annoyed me that I was like created a perfect filter. It's like, oh, this is perfect, but I need to create another source that's similar to this, and I don't want to start from scratch. Well, previously you had to, and now with 26.1, you don't. You can just copy and paste the filter between sources, and that is awesome. They've also added support for HLS uh, streaming and also ingests for YouTube. And they've added a replay buffer save event from, from to the front end API, which is just really cool. So I am so excited to try the latest version of OBS. I currently don't have it yet, but fingers crossed the distro will get updates pretty soon. Uh, anyway, OBS Studio 26.1. Uh, so many cool features that are in, in this release, and I can't wait to play with all of them. So if you'd like to learn more about this release, I have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the beta release of 20.01 for Linux Mint. To be clear, this is a beta version, which means it's not ready for everyday users. This is for people who want to test it out and provide feedback for potential improvements, bug fixes, and that sort of thing. And also, for those who don't know, the release schedule for Linux Mint is kind of different in how it works. It works like this. So the... 20.x series is based on Ubuntu 20.04 LTS. So 20.x meaning all of the branches that are 20 point something. So 20.0 was the first one, 0 0.1, 0 0.2, and 0 0.3 are also all released based on the Ubuntu 20.04 LTS core system. So this is released basically every three, every six months, sorry, every six months they rebase this, the, they 
They make updates to the system, but they do not rebase the core system. It still stays on the 2004 LTS. This means that it ships with the same Linux kernel that was the previous version did, which is the 5.4, and also the rest of the core components also follow suit in being the same versions. Now, this is also why updates from 20.0 all the way to 20.0 or 20.3 are fairly smooth, and it's also why that 19.3 to 20 wasn't the smoothest experience for some. So that's the release schedule for Linux Mint. For those who didn't know, now you know. Uh, this latest release of 20.1 includes the recently released Cinnamon Desktop for 4.8, and they've also added a new tool that is really interesting. It allows you to create desktop applications that are in a web apps form. It uh, basically turn, makes it easy to turn any website into a desktop application where you get it integrated into your system with the system menu, uh, icons, uh, op options for depending on, I think it's based on Electron, so it should also have notifications structure and that sort of thing. It's similar to the way that Peppermint OS has the uh, option for the same thing with the ICE system where you can create uh, basically desktop applications with websites. Though this is, I'm pretty sure, is based exclusively on Electron, whereas Peppermint's, their structure works on uh, I think Chromium and Firefox, which is really cool. And maybe someday this will as well. But this is really interesting. I think that that the idea of a, a desktop application powered by a web app tool is very cool because there are a lot of great web apps that are out there that are kind of an annoying to use in like a pen tab system or just a basic browser system. I mean, it works and they're great, but at the same time, it could be better. And a desktop app like this is a cool idea. They've also got updates with their new uh, IPTV player app called Hypnotics. This supports live TV. It supports uh, also being able to play movies depending on if your IPTV IPTV provider has a video on demand section. Also, they got updates for the uh, Celluloid application. So there's now hardware video acceleration enabled by default in Celluloid. If you're not familiar, Celluloid is the front end. Uh, application for playing videos and music and stuff through the MPV player. The MPV player is really cool, but it's also not the best UI for the average user. So that's where Celluloid comes in. And they say that on most computers, this means it'll be smoother playback, better performance, and reduced CPU usage, which is always good. They've, they said that the latest release of the driver manager was, was migrated to PackageKit, which features a stronger resolution for package dependencies. And that's always good too. And they have the new Chromium dev package was added to the repository. And this is the one about, like, there was a there was a bit of a, a kerfuffle related to Chromium and the dev package a little while ago. And I made a video about that on the channel. If you want to learn more about that, I'll have that linked in the show notes below. So we're not going to go into that here. But there you go, just so you know that that, that was a thing. Uh, also, the up Upload Manager, Mint Upload, features a better-looking user interface as well as a better drop zone in this release. And if you'd like to learn more about this latest release of Linux Mint 20.1 Beta, then check out the links below in the show notes. We'll also go into more details for the various other versions. Like this is, we're just talking about the cinnamon here and like the general sense of the Linux Mint, but also the 20.01 or 20.1 will also have additions for uh, cinnamon, mate, and XFCE when they, when they come out. So we'll talk about those when the version reaches the stable release. So if you'd like to learn more about the thing or test out, if you just want to test out the beta version yourself, I'll have links to it in the show notes below. So check that out. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about something that doesn't seem like it would be a big deal, but for someone who's been around in the Linux world for a very long time, it kind of is. And that is the update for Debian's website. 
which is great. I, I'm finally, ha- I'm happy to say they finally have made an update. For those who are not aware, it took many years for this update to happen. And in March 2019, they talked. They had a sprint for the web team talking about what they needed to do for restructuring uh, the and the, the content, the layout, the scripts, and that sort of stuff to build the website. So I am happy to see they are making some progress there. They say that it, though, although it took longer than they they would have liked, they don't consider this the final homepage version, but they think it's a very good step towards a much better website. And I agree, this is a much better, much improved version than the previous version. So. They're very, very nice to see that. Uh, also, just a quick note for those who are curious, uh, Linux Mint also needs to update their website just because it's been uh, 13 years since they did. And, you know, if Debian can do it, so can Linux Mint. Just a quick tip there. Anyway, so the next step for the Debian website, they say, is going to be improvements to CSS. They improve the icons. They're going to improve the, the layout in general. And also, they're going to try to do some improvements for the better stru- for a, a new, better structure. Also, they're using the Moin Moin uh, wiki engine, which is written in Python, as their CMS, which I think is pretty interesting. So it's pretty cool that they're trying, they're using it in this way. I'm not a big fan of wikis, but the way that they have done the update for the homepage using a wiki is very commendable. So there you go. Uh, And Debian is also looking for external help with the website build. So if you want to help with the website, the newest version, I'll have links for the how you can help in the show notes below. And if you want to check it out, just go to Debian.org to see the new version. And then you get interrupted by your phone because you forgot to turn off the notifications. Up next in the show is the OpenSUSE board elections. So voting for the OpenSUSE board elections has begun. OpenSUSE board consists of people who are OpenSUSE members, which is a classification of contributors in the OpenSUSE project. And these members get to participate in molding OpenSUSE's future. And only OpenSUSE members can run for the board, as well as also only OpenSUSE members can vote in these elections. So you may be wondering, why am I covering it on the show? Well, that is a good question, as an election for board members of a distribution that you likely can't vote in does seem a bit limited in scope for a topic, but I do have a reason. And the reason we are covering it on this episode is that there are three slots available on the OpenSUSE board, and there are two friends of the show running for the board, which is Neil Gompa and Nathan Wolf, which people in the DLN community might recognize Nathan as Cubicle Nate, and I just wanted to, you know, wish them luck in it and... If the people who listen to the show happen to be OpenSUSE board members and also happen to vote for Neil and Nate, that'd be cool. I'm not saying that I'm using this platform to do that. I'm just saying, you know, it'd be cool. And also to be clear, this is not against the other candidates in any way whatsoever. And if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links to the board elections page as well as details for the different candidates in the show notes below to check it out if you'd like to. So links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN. If you're not familiar with what a password manager is, then you need to definitely check this out because a password manager is software that allows you to have a peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, securing your online accounts is very important because the best security practice for passwords is to have a different password for every account on every website that you sign up to. And sure, this makes sense as a policy, right? But without a password manager, that's a very painful thing to do. So, 
Bitwarden solves this by providing tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, uh, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to. And you can access your data across multiple types of devices, like your web browser, using mo their mobile apps, a desktop application, or even the command line if you want to do that as well. Bitwarden also seals your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know that you're the only person with access to your data. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these great features, it is also 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. And they don't just stop there. They also bring in third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is as secure as possible. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, if I didn't, you can't. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. But I think you'll want to check out their premium account anyway because you also get a lot of extra features like one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Priority Customer Support, and their Bitwarden Authenticator app for temporary one-time passwords or TOTP. And you can get all of this for just $10 per year. That's right. $10 per year. So make the smart move like many from the DLN community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. This lets you get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. Sign up for their $10 per year premium account to let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Next in the show, let's talk about some mobile news. So Ubuntu Touch OTA-15 has been released this week from the UbiPorts team. For those not aware, Ubuntu Touch is, the, is a mobile operating system for phones that was originally created by uh, Canonical and the Ubuntu team, but they decided to discontinue it in 2017. But thankfully, though, work continued on the project thanks to the UbiPorts team and their efforts. So this latest release has a lot of cool improvements. We're going to talk about the uh, highlights mostly again, but we're going to talk about a lot of different things because it is really nice to see all, a lot of these things that are coming out in this latest release. So they have improvements to the Android 9 hardware compatibility layer, and also they have improvements to uh, the audio playback to make it smoother, automatic configuration of mobile data APN settings, which is fantastic. That's a technical way of saying being able to set up connection with your carrier. It's really nice to have that uh, being automatic configuration because there's when I first tried Ubuntu Touch many years ago, that was a difficult thing to do. Now I still have my, my my phone has uh, the configuration for the Ubuntu Touch because I still have one device that runs Ubuntu Touch, uh, but not having to do that when you first get into it, that's a good thing. I'll let you know like that right now. That's a good thing. Anyway, the ability to rotate photos taken from the front camera has also been added. They've also made it possible to send USSD codes through this latest release. And they've also improvements to the Morph web browser. So it has the ability to swipe up from the bottom screen to switch tabs, which is a nice convenience. And they've also made it so that when they redesigned the, the switching interface for tabs, that you'll be able to close tabs by just swiping them away rather than hitting the X, the X on the touch area, which is very nice. And they've also had better, they've improvements for better error reporting for MMS messages if there are issues. And they've also made it possible to uh, dial phone calls with Bluetooth, devi Bluetooth devices, which is very nice. And something that is not really talked about that much, but should be on, and available for every single application and every single thing of all products and projects ever is an improved dark theme. Everything should have a dark theme for people who want a dark theme, which is me for everything. So... Very nice to see that Ubuntu Touch has improved their dark theme. And also, 
Uh, work continues to transitioning from the Ubuntu 16.04 base to the 20.04 LTS base, and they say that they just have a few months of support for reg- left for the regular 16.04 uh, release, but they do think that there will be a little bit of a gap overlap where they won't be ready in time for the full uh, support for the 20.04, but they are making a lot of good progress there, so that is really nice to see. They've also got new uh, support for different uh, devices for this the Ubuntu the UbiPorts installer, which is a really nice way of getting uh, access to easily install Ubuntu Touch onto your devices. So they created this really cool installer that you essentially just plug your device into it, put it in this, the modes that allow it to have modifications to like the unlocked bootloader and that sort of stuff. You just put it into the, that position and then you plug it to your computer and you just tell it to install and then it does. It, it's uh, really awesome. When I first started using it again was many years ago. I need to just try it again. I need to just wipe the device and then try the new like experience with the latest version to see what it's like because I've had that device for a while with it on there. So I've uh, you know seeing these things, it makes me want to try it even more. So I I think I will. Uh, so the, anyway, this latest release has support for in the UV ports installer for Google Pixel 3a, a OnePlus 2, the new Pro One X that was announced from the uh, FX Tech team and the XDA team. Uh, Xiaomi Red uh, Redmi Note 7 has been added supported, and also the Galaxy Note 4 has been added to this installer system. And I will have a link to all of this as well as the uh, full list of the devices that are available for Ubuntu Touch in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some really awesome news. Kate has turned 20 years old this week. So Kate is the text editor from KDE. Uh, I've been an avid user of Kate since I switched to KDE Plasma in 2014. And I just got to say thank you all for making such a great application. I've tried most, if not all, of the other text editors available on Linux. And I seem to just always come back to Kate for some reason or another. It's a great app for quick notes and that sort of stuff. So thanks for making that. Uh, for an email sent back in 2000, for uh, Christoph, Christoph Coleman, the current maintainer of Kate, sent an email to the former uh, KWrite maintainer, and it dates back to December 14th, 2000. And when you use a 24-hour clock, the timestamp for the email is 1838.42. And you may be wondering, why am I giving the specific timestamp for an email? And that's a very good question. And it's because what Christoph said in the blog post. He says, funny enough, if you look at the timestamp of the mail, it got mailed out at 1838.42. At the time, I was 18, and now I'm 38, and always 42 is a good number. And I agree with that last statement for sure, of course, and I just think it's fun that he pointed that out because it is kind of interesting. I mean... It is just a coincidence, but a fantastic coincidence. And he says, I would have not, I, I would not have thought that something I began working on at the age of 18 is still something that I use daily at work by my 20 year old version or 20 years older version self. Also, over the past 20 years, more than 550 people have contributed to the project. And since moving to GitLab, the interest seems to have increased. Uh, Christoph says that I am very happy with the progress of the last few years. We gained more traction again, and with the switch to our GitLab instance, we got a lot of contribu- uh, contributions merged in the past months. So again, thanks to Christoph and all the people who have worked creating the Kate text editor. I am a big fan, and I hope you continue to do another 20 years working on it. Uh, so because I just can't, I just I use the Kate at, at, the Kate text editor every day for all sorts of stuff. So thanks again for making it. If you have to learn more about this. Uh, latest this latest news related to the history of Kate, or if you want to just check out Kate itself, I'll have links to the blog post and the website for it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Firefox 
84. So Mozilla's Firefox browser has a lot of cool updates in this release. Uh, specifically, the most, probably the most important one is the enablement of web render by default when using X11 or the X server. So it's not available yet for those who are using Wayland, but that should be coming pretty soon. But for those who are not aware, what is web render? So web render is a GPU-based rendering engine written in Rust, which improves your web browsing experience by making Firefox faster and also smoother to use. Uh, Firefox 84 is also the last version that will have support for Adobe's Flash, which does make sense because Adobe's Flash will be reaching end of life very soon, so it does make sense to not support something that is as problematic in security terms that Flash is. So even Adobe has given up on it, so it makes sense that you would not support that going forward. And I know some people are not going to be thrilled by this because of all the Flash games that exist on the web, and, but it actually there's some good news on that is because uh, archive.org have been archiving different Flash games, and there's also been work to make support for these Flash games to work on Rust, which is really awesome. And I, I do hope that this continues to work and you have to like, you know, be able to provide like a self-contained download or something like that, that you can play these games in a similar way that you can do with like DOSBox and that sort of stuff. So really cool that the work from the archive.org is, is happening that way because I, I'm, it's very imp interest, uh, important for a lot of people. So it's really cool. Also, Firefox 84 adds support for loading all of Mozilla's trusted intermediate certificate authorities on new profiles in a single day from remote settings. And what this means is that it allows you to it allows them to avoid any security errors on misconfigured websites. So that's really important. And also this version also added ability to allocate shared memory on Linux systems, which will improve the performance of the browser and increase compatibility with Docker. If you want to learn more about the latest release of Mozilla's Firefox web browser for 84, I'll have links in the show notes below. I just want to take a moment to tell you about frontpagelinux.com. FPL is a website that's created by the Destination Linux Network for news, articles, tutorials, opinions, and so much more focused on Linux and open source. In addition to all of this great content on the site, one of the coolest things about FPL is that you, yeah, you listening to the show, can write for Front Page Linux if you'd like to. So if there's something you want to publish to the world and think it's a good fit for FPL, then please just get in touch with us. Uh, and that's exactly what Deep Graywall did, a new contributor to FPL. He, what he did was actually submit a guide for ButterFS. So go to frontpagelinux.com to check that out. And if you'd like to do what Deep did and become a contributor to FPL, then there, here's what you need to do. Go to frontpagelinux.com and click on the contribute link at the top of the site. And this will take you to a page that explains the whole process to become a contributor and submit content to FPL. Anyone is welcome to contribute to FPL. So if this is something that, you, that sounds like you'd like to do this, then go to frontpagelinux.com and get in touch. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux Navar t-shirt by going to dlnstore.com, as well as all the other great stuff at the DLN Store. So go to dlnstore.com to check that out. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Humble Bundle, and more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network, and both of them are fantastic. I'm a little bit biased, but... They are fantastic. It's true. Check them out and you will see.
And also just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the Linux news each week. And of course, this show is global. So if those time zones don't really help you with that, I have a link in the show notes below for a time zone converter to help you find it out what it is in your time zone. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux news.